This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. Is there a Jew you should know in your life that you'd like to highlight, honor, have featured with a shout out on this program? Email Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. Send me information about that person today. Also, very exciting. You know that we've highlighted dailygiving.org many times on this program. An incredible charitable institution that brings together your individual dollars from all over the world and funnels them towards worthy charitable causes. Well, they have just crossed the $9,500 a day mark, marching towards 10000 daily. So that is extremely exciting news as well. Please go to dailygiving.org and add your contribution today. And speaking of today, we're very excited to highlight Miriam Leah Gamliel. She is an expert in the arts and has done a tremendous amount to create creative outlets for young religious women in the world today. Excited to hear her story, her own personal religious journey, as well as what she is doing with her unique gifts to give back to the community. A reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Comments or questions, as noted earlier, Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. Subscribe or follow wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whichever destination you use for your listening enjoyment. And now to our conversation with Atara founder and OU Impact Accelerator awardee, Miriam Leah Gamliel. We are here with Miriam Leah Gamliel, the founder and director of Atara, which we will learn all about what that stands for and what that is all about. And how are you today, Miriam Leah? Baruch Hashem. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. Such an honor and a pleasure. Very excited to have you, to meet you. We were just joking that, you know, it's always fun to meet somebody after you hear their name because uh, the name that appears on your email sounds like this really funky, exotic sort of ethnic name that I, and I made all these assumptions about your background. And then I saw you on screen and it was a different name. <laughs> so it's great to actually see you not live, but close to live, um, and really get to see who you, you actually are. Um, and, and very excited to have you today. So Miriam Leah, tell us a little bit about where you are from. What's your background? So I am from Pittsburgh and grew up uh, conservative, actually at the Tree of Life Synagogue. Wow, incredible. So that must have really been, been powerful when that uh, tragedy occurred. Right. I did. I wrote an article because I just had to process it. You know, that was literally my hometown and synagogue that I, you know, grew up and attended Hebrew school. And I knew the ins and outs, right. You don't, you don't actually go to services as a child in synagogue. You only run around the building. So, you know, knowing that building really well. And um, so, yeah, so I, I grew up um, learning, you know, conservative level Hebrew with a bat mitzvah. And um, 
And then, and I was involved, I guess, you know, the points of my childhood that are, you know, most relevant um, is, you know, I was, I was definitely involved in the arts um, in terms of every Shabbos, I would go to musical theater, right? Like I did not call that Shabbat. I would take the bus downtown and take classes in musical theater. And, um, and then, so, you know, to a certain degree, I sort of have to give back because, you know, I gained all my education um, at the expense of, you know, traditional Judaism. But, um, you know, my, my impression of orthodoxy was, you know, toilet paper rituals, you know, they had some sort of strange ritual with toilet paper, you know, now looking back, they obviously, you know, had to like rip their toilet paper in advance, but you know, it was, it was hard to understand, you know, why they were doing what they were doing. And I felt very empowered as a Jew. Um, I was a very strong Jew um, in terms of going to Jewish summer camp and being in a culturally Jewish um, community where, if they didn't go to my Hebrew school, I sort of made the assumption that they went to someone else's Hebrew, a different Hebrew school. I assume you were, were you living in Squirrel Hill? Squirrel Hill, exactly. So that's interesting because that's almost like a little, was it like a ghetto of sorts. I mean, there's tons totally of Jews walking around. You have a huge uh, Orthodox community, you have a huge Chabad community, obviously also Orthodox, its own kind of subset uh, walk there. And so your, your exposure when you live in Squirrel Hill, I imagine was pretty significant, even if you personally were not Orthodox. No, no. Interestingly, as you know, there's also a very strong JCC. Like I was, there's the JCC community simultaneously overlapping. So what's great is that when I did become observant, I didn't have to move to the Jewish community. The Jewish community are they're all overlapping, and so I could live in my, you know, in my, in my own home with my parents and walk to the Orthodox shul, you know, within the Eruv. Um, Relatively speaking, my house was outside the air roof, but, you know, it was still walking distance. And um, so that, yeah, but the Pittsburgh community is absolutely phenomenal. And Pittsburgh people marry Pittsburgh people. I don't know how much you know about Pittsburgh, but it's really this, like, you know, we <laughs> shout out to Pittsburghers listening, you know, right? We just have this, like, community centric. It's a, it's a city with intelligent people with intelligentsia. There's, you know, universities and medical centers. So it's a, it's, it's an educated community, but a very small town feeling where, you know, people are just very um, non-judgmental and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful community. So, um, so I grew up with that. I think also that probably impacts my views on others and the world and coming into the Orthodox community and, and being surprised to find anything other than non-judgment and, you know, because that, that to me was the you know given circumstances is that you just are warm and accepting and um but yeah so so but but by also the upbringing I think did lead to my interest in Judaism in the sense that I was never turned off I was never I was always engaged in being Jewish and then you know at some point you have to ask yourself what does that mean at you know and 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 am I being am I am I being my best self Right, you know, I'm at like a sort of in being predisposed to these deep, deep thoughts. You know, you sit around and say, you know, if I was Chinese, I'd be learning calligraphy. You know, like I'd be, I'd be saying, what does it mean to be Chinese, and how can I be more Chinese? Right. So I was Jewish, so I said, you know, how can I be the best Jew? And so it led me to um, 
to be being open. I wouldn't say that that then prompted me to go and learn independently, but I um, simultaneously with the musical theater trajectory, um, I eventually studied musical theater. And because I had been studying musical theater, I was not permitted to study French. I somehow had this dream of becoming Grace Kelly and <laughs> actress who became a princess. And so I was like, great, that's me, all right? I'm gonna be, I'm gonna learn French and then I'm gonna go follow Grace Kelly. <laughs> Unfortunately, nobody wants to follow Grace Kelly per se. <laughs> um, but the, the, this dream of becoming a princess, right? So, but then I had too many arts, arts credits. And so I wasn't allowed to then, you know, take the, junior year abroad to France because I hadn't studied French. And um, and so sort of consolation prize, I picked Israel. Um, and where were you <laughs> in school at the time? Uh, I was in Penn State in a musical theater conservatory. Um, and so I just, you know, picking Israel was just sort of, if I'm not going to go to France, you know, I might as well learn about Judaism. Um, and um, in back at tracking to high school, I had also gone on a teen tour. So I felt like I had toured sufficiently. And so when I was in Jerusalem, I was, I just said, you know, let me, let me absorb Jerusalem. It's a holy city. Let me understand. Uh, I, I actually dated an, an Arab, you know, and so I, I should say Hashem, like, like religion saved me from being an, a statistic of Yad Laachim because I said to him, I'm Shomer Nagia, right? Like now I'm Shomer Nagia. I had just learned about you it. Were, just explain what that is for the audience. That means not touching. To me, this was this big joke. And I would like sort of poke people and say like, can't, can't touch you, you know, can't touch this. And, but it was, so it was funny to me, but it was a good way to break up with someone. So I would say, you know, I'm so sorry. You know, now I am religious, which I wasn't at the time, but I was learning about the ideas. And so it was a good way to, um, but Chomanagia is just not touching the opposite gender until marriage. So, um, so I was just, you know, being exposed, right? You're sitting in Jerusalem. I'm easy prey. I was open to what rabbis had to say. You know, I'm here in college. I, rabbis are going to come and say, let me teach you about Judaism. And I'm like, great. You know, like I have a mind. I can evaluate for myself what you're saying. I'm not, I don't think that you're trying to brainwash me. And if I did, I would, you know, smell it. I think. And so I'm, I'm open. And so um, what really changed it for me, though, was the Moshav band, right? Like the Moshav get, band gets credit for my, my carving, you know, like for, for all my Shabbos, like goes to the Moshav band. I, I'm sure there were rabbis along the way, but it, they opened this door because the band were kipot, right? I had never before seen someone that I could relate to um, on a personal level that was also religious. So religious people were religious. They looked different than me. They didn't have the same lifestyle or the same life choices as I did. And I was comfortable with who I was, but here was someone that I admired in, from my condition, you know, from, from my qualifications of like, what's cool, you know, they were great musicians and cool and funny and they were kipot, right? So that that gave me the like open door to that religion can be for anyone. Um, and it doesn't change, you know, uh, your social habits and, you know, it, it's, 
you're allowed to be a musician, right? So they 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 modeled that. Um, and so um, then the other part of being becoming religious was academic for me. Um, was I just every paper that I had to write was a, an opportunity to investigate Judaism versus non-Judaism. And whatever it was, I was like studying Bernard Shaw and I don't know how that paper related to Judaism versus non-Judaism, but it somehow I figured out a way to do my own exploration as I was <clears throat> studying academics. And so each paper that I wrote, you know, gave me another layer of, you know, an, an answer to a new question. And um, to that degree, I also eventually um, studied Jewish history and, and that was really, a, again, a consolation prize for not, you know, I wasn't welcome to study the rabbinate. I wasn't welcome to be a cantor. I wasn't welcome to be a, you know, superstar performing artist, which now the game is changing. But at the time, you know, nobody was saying, great, let me give you a contract for your singing career um, as a woman um, in, in orthodoxy. And, you know, I could sing to my children. That was it. And, and that was, and, and to a certain degree, that was the experience that I was having where my performing arts were on two, and, and, and religion were on two different tra trajectories. So as I um, became, I was a performing artist and as I became more involved in orthodoxy, then I stopped performing. And so as I was learning more about religion then I started being more religious, but like, so they, the, the paths, the trajectories crossed. And so when I became religious, my performing arts stopped and, and so that was what I understood from the rabbis and rebbitsons around me, mainly rebbitsons. And I don't think that they intentionally were trying to put a wet blanket on me, but it was what I gathered from the little hushkafic drops of, you know, you can sing to your children, but several key moments where um, when I eventually did choose to go to seminary, um, I the Hanukkah play and the Purim play just weren't enough, right? I was already directing and co coordinating these productions, but it just was, it was farcical. It was like, you know, how, how funny and stupid can you be? Not how, if you have talent to really be able to showcase that. So I put together, this is sort of pre-Atara, I put together a talent showcase for all of the seminary girls um, that I knew had talent. So from my seminary and Neve and wherever I heard someone could sing or dance or act, you know, I, I called them and I said, I heard that you have talent. Our seminary is gonna make a fundraiser for our seminary, right? Like it was just about, there wasn't really a purpose to it other than having this, you know, event where we could use our talents in a way that could, you know, showcase the talent, benefit, enjoy, you know, have something for the community to enjoy and give, you know, charity, right? Give tzedakah. And so at the end, right, it was so successful and we raised a thousand shekels and it was like, you know, whatever the case may be. And the Rebbitzin said, you know, and said, I'm, you know, I'm so happy, right? Here's a thousand shekels for your yeshiva. Isn't that great? And she said, what's great is that now you know your priorities and you can be in class tomorrow. And I was like, are, are you like, what? just just shoot me like just stab me right now stab me in the heart like what and so I just felt so unappreciated right like so like not wow you have these gifts and they can be used and so something was just wrong and then I went back to Pittsburgh and then the other sort of like powerful moment for me like sad moment for me was there was a Chabad right and they you know and bless their heart they do a lot of good 
but you know, I, they, one of the rabbits and asked me, you know, she heard that I sang, did I want to perform for the girls? And then she said to me, it can only be Nagunim. And I just, I just cried. I just, I don't know Nagunim. I don't sing Nagunim. It's a different genre. If you want to sing Nagunim, like it's just, you can harmonize to them and, you know, play them instrumentally. And maybe someone who can take a Nagun and turn it into, you know, someone can, can do a remix and put a techno beat to a Nagun, but it, they're not as singable as musical theater was for me and that my training and my genre, and I can't just like take a niggun and like belt it out in musical theater style. So it just, I just felt like I, I didn't even have any material to perform. So what's the point of having people who want to showcase in a women only setting, but I still have no material to perform. So I'm just, I was stuck and, um, but I just, that was, that just, pounded me down, right? Like I just felt, you know, where I don't have a niche here. And so for 10 years, um, sort of like betrays my age, but I actually um, was just underground. I became a librarian. And um, because to me, it was like an, an extra educational space without homework, right? I didn't have to like actually do lesson planning, but I could stay in the like learning um, milieu, like a space, and also libraries are gorgeous, right? They have all windows and sunlight. So there was the romance. I love being in a library. Um, as you know, you can see the books <laughs> behind me. I just, I love, um, you know, my secret passion is just reading. Um, and um, so, so I became a librarian and I just, no one knew that I was a performing artist and I was learning about, you know, at the time, right, I was becoming more observant and living in Passaic, New Jersey, and um, trying to also navigate whether I was Chabad or Litvish. Um, I had cousins that were Lubavitch, so they assumed I was Lubavitch. And then um, I attended a Litvish seminary, so I had that influence. And, um, you know, God forbid I should be modern Orthodox because they're the den of sin I don't know you know you, you go for the the, the, the more lit fish perspective is a little bit like you know you take someone who didn't you know who, who ate bacon and then you like say that there's nothing less than right like you know absolute chatel with you know like all of the bells and whistles and so there's like no in between because those but those are the people doing outreach. So, you know, shout out to modern orthodoxy to like go into outreach and then, you know, um, people will find that middle ground, um, which eventually um, I, I, you know, hashkafically, it's just been a long journey, I would say. And I, I do live in a Litfish community and, you know, I switched my kids to um, base Jacob at this point, but. I just, so I just want to, I just want to back up for a second because, you know, you're going through this whole journey and, but I'm listening as, you know, as somebody who's involved in Jewish outreach and as somebody, and just as a, as an observer, didn't you feel resentful at these times? And, and why didn't you just walk away? Like, you know, when you were still at a formative and probably fairly tenuous point in your development and you were getting all these sort of messages that were counteracting a core part of your identity, why didn't you just walk away? So two reasons. Um, one is, uh, so it's actually the first Pasuk in like Rashi or something answers this on Anochi Hashem. And I feel like that answer, not knowing that answer at the time, but 
the reason that I chose to stick with it is sort of that answer, which is if God, if, if, if God exists, then he's God, right? Like I'm not God. So I don't know. I can't have a dialogue with him about why he does certain things. I have to trust that if I'm not God and he's God, then right. Like that means that, that he's God, he, he knows. And so there's this submission to God knows, like he, he knows why he said what he said. And eventually maybe I'll know more, but if he says that I can't sing, right. So like the rabbis and the Rebbitsons were representing God to me. That, That was God, whatever the Rebbitson said, that's what God said. And so if God said that I couldn't sing, then God knew what he was doing. And eventually it would, I would understand it. Um, And the other reason was the journey I had made was my choice. Like I had, I was not influenced by anyone. I do not, you know, I'm a creative person. I do not like to be told what to do. (laughs) Someone's going to come and tell me what to do. And I'm going to say, let me think about it. Let me understand it. And I'll make the decision myself. It's just sort of, you know, inborn to the creative mind um, to need that autonomy. And so I did not, you know, even kashrut, this was a very slow process and skirts, you know, maybe it was like a two-year process that was, uh, uh, you know, will I eat, will I go to the, not, will I eat shrimp? Okay, I'm going to choose not to eat shrimp, but I'm still going to go to a non-kosher restaurant. I just won't eat the shrimp. Will I go to the non-kosher restaurant? Okay maybe I'll choose a kosher restaurant, right? Like it was just every decision. So by the time I got to be observant, I wasn't gonna judge the flossing and the toothbrushing on whether I wanted clean teeth. If I bought into the picture and I didn't like to floss my teeth, then I just, I, I still bought into the picture. That's the sort of metaphor that I had to use for myself, that there's certain parts of an experience that you, that aren't satisfying and, and could be irritating and harder than others. But if you buy into the bigger picture, then you just live with them because there's too many other things in life to worry about than to, you know, start changing, finding things wrong. And if you just look at what's wrong, then you're just not going to, you know, I I just think it takes a remarkable amount of humility uh, on your part. You know, many people don't take that tact of, you know, well, there's this bigger picture and I just have to sort of sublimate myself to that. They'll, you know, they'll find other ways to rationalize, you know, contradicting that, which the parts that, that don't sit well with them. And yeah, and I think it's understandable from a human perspective, but um, I do think it takes a lot of humility to, to assume the posture you assumed. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, go in so many directions from that because I, it's, it's a pattern that I feel like I definitely, um, I, I, I would say that my pattern is not to go down without a fight, right? Like my first instinct is well, I, well, I don't know what my first in- instinct is. I have, um, you know, because I do tolerate a lot. I don't want to rock the boat on a certain level until I feel something has become crystallized and clear there's a problem. And then I can say, there's a problem that's not being addressed. And then my sort of like stage two is, why isn't this being addressed? And that's really what essentially what happened with the Tara is, you know, like there were so many people that I met along the way who had also given up careers and, you know, or said that they sang or, you know, whatever it was, maybe not so many, but 
everyone that sort of had a background, we were all sort of in the same boat where we were religious and we had a background in the arts and, you know, there was nothing to do about it. And, you know, so we would sing together, let's say Sudashli Sheet was always this time where I felt like, you know, girls could get together and harmonize. And so that was something that we sort of found each other. And that I, I would say actually was the start of Atara because the person that I ultimately became like my partner in crime from the beginning until now, now um, we just sang together at Sudashli Sheet. I would go to her house and we would just harmonize. And so it was from that relationship that was born something larger, um, a need. And so it was from that relationship and just um, eventually, right, I, I, I ended up on the Upper West Side. Um, it was Shabbat and the, uh, the um, what were their names? Wolanski at the time was the Rebbitin, the associate rabbi and Rebbitin at OZ. And she said, you know, why don't we start a theater club? And I happened to be at the table and, you know, really no one knew. I don't know. I don't know if she knew my background, but, and I was like, oh, you know, pick me. <laughs> and then, so right after Shabbat, I said like, what about that theater club? You know, like, let's see, no one stepped up. No one was interested, right? And I said, listen, I'm not letting this drop. I'm interested. So let me, if no one else is interested, I'm gonna, can we make a musical? Can we make a musical for women? And she was like, great, you know, like whatever, the, the shoal was behind it. And so I held on, you know, it was at first, you know, you start to make your own musical. We're going to make a Jewish themed musical. And then, you know, I went through to get rights. And then I was told I wanted to do Guys and Dolls, you know, like on the Upper West Side adapted, right, for, you know, the Upper West Side relationships. And Guys and Dolls um, licensing said, no, this is no adaptation rights. So I was like, okay, you know, writing a new musical is just going to be too difficult. Let's pick one. We picked a, a sort of women's musical and we got adaptation rights. And, um, but through this process, women from New Jersey and Queens and Brooklyn, which are, if you don't know the New York area, you know, could be an hour and a half away drive. were coming in for auditions and rehearsals and the performance was fantastic. And people said, wow. And at that point, you know, this was like having a meeting with like, you know, the so stakeholders, like who is interested in having a community of people who love the performing arts, who are from women and girls. And we were like, you know, I went back to, at the time I was living in Boston and that's where I, you know, knew this other woman and I got her in, involved. And so anybody that was interested in a community, someone came from Israel and said, I'm interested in a community of the arts. I was just doing something in Israel. So I said, great, we have a whole community of people. You know, I just did a musical, let's gather the troops. And so I took the train from Boston and I meet her at Starbucks and I thought there was gonna be 25 people. I don't know, I thought she was organizing this big meeting and I was coming in from Boston to be a part of it. And it was, I was the only person that showed up. It was me. I came in from Boston and it was me and this girl from Israel. And so I was like, okay, you know, great. Let's have a conversation about the need for the arts in the Orthodox community for women um, in general. You know, there's a serious problem. People are either, I'd also met people who were artists who had defected, right? So they, they felt that they had to choose. It's either Judaism or arts at that time. Now the choice is, you know, you, that's not the case, Baruch Hashem. But 
at that time it was, you know, either I want to study theater, I want to be a dancer, I can't be orthodox. I want to be orthodox, I have to let go of my dance background, my theater background, and my singing. So I just knew that there was a problem and, and, and a need and an interest, right? You had all these women from this musical. And so she said that she wanted to make a show in New York, but she was going back to Israel and could I make the show for her? And I was sort of like, hmm, <laughs> maybe, you know, like wasn't exactly what I was thinking, but you know, I'm gonna go back to Boston. She said, she's gonna call Stern College. She was a graduate. And I said, listen, if Stern College says yes, that they'll give us a space, I'm in, you know, if we have a space that we're not, I don't have to deal with the logistics, I'll gather the performers. And so lo and behold, a few months later, I was just working as a librarian in Boston and she emails me and said, Stern said, yes. So I just turned to everybody that I had been in touch with. And I said, we are on, man, we are making a women's concert at Stern College and call everyone, you know, right? Like get everyone that you ever heard of that sings, that dances, that like who has a background in the arts, get them now. And so we had people flying in from, you know, LA, Robin Garbos was uh, making films. And so she was like, great, I'm about to debut my first film. Let me show it at the conference or whatever it was, you know, let me show a preview. It was just this like gathering of artists. And so to me, it was, it was just, it was not only the show, but it was having a meeting, right? Like, what, do, what are we? Who are we? What do we need? What do we want? What does the community need? What does the community want? Like, what do you... What can we do? I felt that, right, that together we can somehow be greater than the sum of our parts. And so what is that? What, what will we do together that we haven't yet found? And so everybody said, listen, you know, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And, you know, it wasn't like we didn't need to create a camp or create anything local per se, but we wanted to create a community. So we said, fine, let's have a conference, right? We'll bring people together in one bubble for teaching, learning, performing, discussing, and meeting, you know, meeting each other. And so that was, so I just sort of fell to the task of like being an administrator, right? I had the administrative side and the analytical side to me um, and, and the, the directing side, you know, for, for what that's worth, the sort of skill set and being able to take multiple um, pieces and put them together. So I just sort of decided that I, that, that it would be you know, I, I've never produced a conference before, but how, how hard can that be? Right. You just Simple. sort of like math and you put in the, you put in the talent and then you make a flyer and then you advertise it. Like what, what's a no brainer, right? It's like a, it's like a production. You're just putting it together in the way that makes sense, you know, for like, if I was going to a conference and to, to a certain degree as a librarian, I had been involved actually in the Jewish Libraries Association. So, uh, you know, backstory secret that, you know, the Arts Association is sort of based on the library community. Um, but, you know, I was involved as a participant in some board meetings and some, you know, chairing committees and seeing how a conference is run. And so I just had that, I imported that experience and I just applied it to the, you know, religious arts community. And at the time it wasn't just women. I was actually interested in men that were, you know, doing Shomer Shabbat work. And so it wasn't in the board. I was sort of like invited people to the meeting that were men involved, but I feel like it was just man overboard. Like they just wanted to 
throw me overboard. They just, it was like women only, you know, we want to talk with our hands, like even at the meetings, right? It was very important that it was a space, a safe space for women. And so it wasn't that men attended the conference, but I would have a man panelist because I thought that he brought his experience in starting a Shomer Shabbat initiative. And so, um, so that was the first conference and it was also Stern College had liked what we did the first time. So they invited us back. But, um, but by the second year, we had already committed. We had already started advertising. Stern had said yes to a second year. And at that point, Bernie Madoff did his whole, you know, game changer and Stern College, you know, lost their funding. So we were just like an extra frill, you know, and it just didn't make sense for an outsider to be using the facility when they needed to pull back. But at that point, you know, you're so deep in, in the same way that I was so deep into Judaism, you know, when I had a bad experience, you have to make a choice. You're so deep in, do you, do you quit because of the obstacle or do you say, it's an obstacle, but I'm already here. Like I, what do I do? Right. You, you do have to make a choice, but I guess at those points, I feel that sometimes when I'm so, um, so involved that I need to say, well, what are some other alternatives, right? It's, it's not black and white. It's either great or horrible. And you have to quit. You have to, at least I feel like we have to be able to say that's, Great. That's a concern. That's an, a, a, a question that's raised. So the issue is not therefore quit. The issue is how do we address that concern? How do we come up with solutions that could like eliminate the problem or, you know, avoid the problem? And so I listen, like we were in New York, this wasn't like Alabama, you know, there were 300, 500 theaters available and, and dance studios available. And it just sort of opened up the Kaylee for like the rest of the world and like taking dance classes and putting them in a dance studio, not in a classroom at Stern, you know, instead of being within the the confines of, you know, just whatever space was offering something to us, we could rent space. If I priced it, you know, if I did the crunch, the numbers and did ticket sales and donations and whatever, you know, then we could rent real space in New York city dance studios and theaters. And so that's what we did for a few years. And this was for what? This was for classes or for more conferences? Like who were you servicing at this point? Conferences. It was like, it was too much to do more than once a year. And it was just a once a year. Yeah. I mean, it was just different people were getting involved. And so we were thinking about different spaces in New York, but it was really just once a year. And people were always were asking, right, what's in between? I can't, I can't live like this once a year, right? Like I need something constant. And so my, my contribution was just making a newsletter, right? Like the monthly, this is what's happening to sort of keep people connected and inspired because if they saw, hey, there's a, a dance school opening in, you know, Chicago, that gives me inspiration to open my dance school in Michigan, you know, or whatever the case may be. And so that it was like a sense of things are happening, even if it's not where I am, I can feel connected to others and I can feel inspired and I can be, and be motivated to do something new myself. And that was really the goal of that. And, um, and then you can also see over history, you can see how it grows and like things that start and things that new things that start and what trends, you know, if you do like a, like a retrospective of like the newsletter, you know, you could really 
track the growth. And so it's interesting, but that was the way that we stayed together. And the other thing that I did was I just said, I just had to say, you go and do it like sort of empowerment. I'm not going to start your dance school, right? I don't live in Chicago or whatever the case may be. You are empowered. If you dance and you live where you live and you came to this and you feel that you're internally empowered and encouraged and supported and we can support you and just be there for you as a community. And if you have questions and if someone has precedent, you can ask them, we'll connect you but you need to go and start your dance studio or teach dances in classes in your basement or record your songs, right? Record your music. You're be- you have a beautiful voice. You need to go and record your own music. I-, I can't record it for you. You know, so it was more just being this source of encouragement. And that was sort of like phase one. And I, at that point, yeah, I don't know if you want to know like my life story. I just was still single. Yeah, please. Yeah. So I was just producing these conferences and I just felt like, like I have to pull back in a way, in a sense that if I'm so right, like a guy would be suggested to me and I'm like, I don't want to waste my time unless he's really a good guy. This is like, these dates are just wasting my time. I have so many important, important things to do. I don't know, you know? And, you know, it was like, I couldn't fit in proper dating. I don't know. You know, I just wasn't giving it the attention that it needed. And I needed to say that, by the way, I don't know, you could see the expression on my face, but just for listeners, like I'm facetiously saying, you know, like important, right? Like I'm not saving people. I'm not a doctor, right? My mom always points out like, you know, your, like, your work can take a break for a day if you need something because you're not the president of the country, right? Like you're not, like, you're not, people's lives aren't depending on you. You know, it was more like maybe emotional support but it wasn't, you know, so I, it wasn't important work in that, in that sense. And, and to a certain degree, that's actually hurt me because I feel uncomfortable asking for tzedakah, frankly, like, you know, right. If we need to be a nonprofit and, and raise money, you know, there's hospitals that need money to save people's lives and we're right. Like, so I, it's, it is an interesting position to be in where people do need the arts and creative expression, but I would argue that it is also a life, a lifesaver in the sense that people either defect like without it, right? People's lives, they might be surviving, but they're not thriving and they might not even be surviving. They literally might be not able to, if they didn't have the creative outlet. So we're way past that now, but anyway, so in my own life, I had to um, just pull back and get married. And I was like, sort of looked at my marriage as like, I need to produce my life. You know, I need to like, see how to, how to get married. And so, um, made it happen, Baruch Hashem, and, um, and then moved to Canada. Is your husband uh, someone interested in the arts as well? How, how did you find a compatible mate? Right. I had, to, I had to accept the fact that I have this background, and if someone doesn't understand the arts, it wouldn't be a good match. Um, I did have a date, and it was like such so clear right? Someone said like, oh, well, I think musical theater is stupid or something. And I <laughs> check, please. <laughs> We'd be such a good match. So I had, you know, I had this realization that like, I needed to be clear about what I was looking for. And so, and also I'm sort of an academic. This is just, you know, anecdotally how I, how I was looking for a husband is, you know, there's these databases of, 
you know, and I just thought, you know, forget it. I'm never going to use these stupid, you know, databases where they, they actually, um, the algorithms, you know, um, really like, uh, what do you call whistleblower? The algorithms send men profiles of women by default that are 15 years younger. So they want them. And so they want the men to think that like, you know, there's a good pool of girls. So the default, the, um, I was getting emailed by 60 year old men and it was, I just felt like these are stupid databases, but if you actually go in and look and do your own searches, you know, there's a lot of people in the database. So I, you know, put in my search terms and then, you know, a hundred people came up and I created a folder and then, right. It's like, I'm looking for articles, I'm doing research. And so I just dump everybody into my folder that I thought was cute and had something to do with the arts. So that was like my only qualifications was I like what you look like and, oh, and you have something to do with the arts. And then they, I, then I put them in my folder and then I could go through my folder and sort of look, you know, and star and like, you know, look at the people that I wanted to, you know, actually get back, you know, right. So, and I would open each email. So this was like, you know, I was like the initiator and I would say, you know, you look interesting. Let me know if what, you know what I mean? Like give, give me a call if you're interested. And I literally at that point had like probably everybody that I wrote to, unless they were already married because it was a th- profile from three years earlier said, let's have a date. And I literally had like a Sundays where it was like two o'clock with Greg and eight o'clock with Steve. And you know what I mean? It was just like sort of overload. So, but then this guy calls from Canada and he was this, this resource type of guy and he had already bought his ticket and then he called me. So it was, it, the truth is it went through a friend and my friend called me and, you know, I was like this low budget artist, you know, directing a play and um, for a middle school. So the play was like that night and my friend called me from Canada, but I have to quickly scramble to get any call from Canada or whatever. She called me over the weekend. She said, when are you available? I said, I'm doing a play. It's Monday. So technically I'd be available for a date on Tuesday. So she calls him back and says she was in Canada. So I had dropped for him. I had said, oh, I have a friend in Canada. If you know this couple. And so he called them and Basof, he bought his ticket before he called me and I'm scram run to get this call for because it's from Canada and I'm not, I don't have Canada minutes and so but it's this guy and he says you know I'm coming tomorrow for a date and I said like I'm just not available right like I just I can't I can't put a date another date on my plate right now like why don't you call me in two weeks and he's like I already bought my ticket and I said oh you know if you already bought your ticket fine you know we'll meet tomorrow so that was how uh, that was how he sort of like slid in and I literally had to cancel other dates you know that had already been set up and so it moved quickly and, you know, kids. And then I just, I secretly hoped in terms of getting back to Atara that someone would sort of like jump in and take leadership. But in the end, there was a new surge of interest, right? There was a, like a few years where you have to just let people, let the community happen, right? Like let people do their thing. You know, we don't need to like give that encouragement and spark anymore because people are now off and running and doing and creating. And, you know, people were creating camps and schools and it's like, you know, you, you need to give that, give people the time to, to have the space to do their own thing. So then a few years later, there was really a new interest and a new surge in what we need to get together. There's still, we need to be a community. And so then there was like a sort of second wave And that's where we are now is, you know, then there was COVID, our conference from 2020 was canceled, but it's like at this point, what are the new needs? I I would say, 
having a conference, now people are connected, right? People are more connected than ever. There's more happening than ever. And so now I sort of did the same thing that I did in the beginning, which I just brought people together. I just made something called the forum and I just like brought people from the community together to say, what are the needs? What are you doing? Who are you and where are you? And what do you, would you need now from an arts community? And is it necessarily a conference or is it something different? And so that sort of gave us direction for where we are now. So tell me a little bit about, you know, what are you doing now? And, and also how did you get connected with the OU and, and the whole impact accelerator? Um, how did that change the profile of what you're able to do? So I definitely am so glad you brought that up because I want to make sure to give a shout out. So this is one of the most game-changing and brilliant programs, I think, in the Jewish world. Because the OU can't do everything, right? Like if they were to say, we, they can't, you know, at a certain point, an organization needs to say, we need to do certain things really well. And so instead they said, you know, let's support other people who are already doing important work that is like sort of niche and just help them with what they need in terms of having a good potential, but not having the business infrastructure. And that's where we were really, you know, I wouldn't say that we weren't a good candidate. We were a pretty good candidate um, in the sense that we had this track record of success, a community of need of people and a growing community. I think the most significant thing is that, you know, every camp that is training girls and every, right, every new generation of girls that is being told, you can do this, you have talent, why don't you develop your talent? You know, in five years from now, there's gonna be 50 new singer-songwriters, a hundred new singer-songwriters, you know, because there's a dance school in, there's a, there's a school training girls in voice in Israel, in LA, in Chicago, in you know, all the camps, right? So where are these girls going to be in five and 10 years? So the community is only going to expand. And you know, how, how do we say, how can we be helpful as a resource to the community of religious artists if there is a need? And the OU gave us strategic business skills. I mean, I, I didn't fundraise because I didn't know how, and I didn't fundraise for my own salary. So this was just a side hustle. This was just a, because of a need, right? I was a sort of motivated by the pain, by the pain point, by the need. And, but now there's sort of like no longer a need, but there's a need for infrastructure, but that's a skill set that I don't necessarily have to just fundraise and, get enough to pay a salary and, and get a social media professional and get ready. Like, you know, there's, there are real needs to, to get the word out, to reach people, whatever it is to do the things that we need to do, whether it's programming or education or advocacy for the arts or helping. So the big need right now that the artists basically, you know, settled on is the, the big majority said, we want money right now we have our talent and you gave us encouragement and we have what we have and we're good at what we do but no one wants to pay us. They want to take our art and donate it to Tzedakah and the artist doesn't get paid, right? So like there, or, you know, there's no structure for paying artists and valuing artists. And, you know, we're going to pay a graphic designer, but but the performer is expected to donate their talent. And they spend 
lots of hours of time practicing and perfecting that talent that brings joy and brings inspiration and brings education, right? Like the arts really um, have this power at their languages. You can, you know, you walk out of Broadway show, you know, um, Sweeney Todd about, you know, killing people and you're like, yeah, kill, 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 right? You're singing and dancing and full of joy about like the craziest subjects. So you can take Torah and Jewish history and those are the subjects of musical theater. And then you're like, wow, I just learned about, right? Why was Hamilton so successful? Because people appreciated that they could, instead of having to read a 600 page textbook, they could get a two hour uplifting music and dance experience and learn the same information. And so that it's this powerful educational tool. So just having an understanding of the power and the potential of the arts, I feel like is just sort of like an advocacy point so thank you for every, any, anybody who's listening, you know, I'm sure this opportunity is like, you know, sort of gets that word out. So yeah, so that's where we are now is trying to find ways to um, bridge that gap for the artist in terms of creating job opportunities. You know, how would that work? The, the shoals and schools don't want to pay a lot, but they should pay something, right? Even if it's $100, $200 to somehow find this low budget model where you know, we could even start with um, emerging artists, right? Because the artists that are already developed, they want more, you know? And so they can be sort of reserved for like the big event, you know, that has a thousand dollars to pay or, you know, paying the talent. But um, so just to, to try to create models that could be um, helpful for the artists moving forward. What do you feel like you've learned about yourself through this whole growth process? working with the OU, developing these different facets of the business. Um, how has it impacted or changed you? So this woman, Esther Leia Marchette, who's my, that's my sort of partner in um, Boston, she keeps saying to me, you know, it's so amazing to see how you change, you've changed from this program. And to me, it's, I don't think that I've per se changed. It's just that this was another academic endeavor right? Here was classes that I could learn in fundraising and business structure and have mentors. To, like this was education, education I'm good at, <laughs> right? Like I got that behind my belt. I am way overeducated. And so, you know, to me, this was just an expose to like this, a whole taking a course in all the subject matter that had been missing for me in terms of trying to be a legitimate established organization. Now, I wouldn't say that it changes overnight. You know, I'm, I'm not going to say that it's a magic pill that if you, just because you attend a class, therefore your organization suddenly gets a hundred thousand dollars, <laughs> you know, and like suddenly you hire a director because you took a class. Like really good. It's, it's, that's not realistic and reality. So I did take the class and I feel empowered and I feel knowledgeable. And so I feel that given time, I'll be able to apply what I've learned in a realistic timetable, but it's given me the confidence and the vision that before I just didn't even know that it was possible. So here I can see the, the goal and I can see the steps that are needed to achieve it. And they gave me that. And so to any degree that there is success is completely based on the education that I got from them, right? Even if it doesn't happen for five years, they are responsible for that development and that growth, even in five years from now. 
And that's why I say that's why I say it's the most powerful, incredible initiative right now in the Jewish world, because they're taking any, everybody in my cohort. Right. We're all at this critical juncture where we don't know what to we don't know what to do with what we've created. We had this vision. We created something. And now we're the visionaries, but not the we don't have MBAs. And so how are we supposed to create something real out of a good idea? So we have this community and this good idea, but how do we make it sustainable? And they, you know, so that's the OU really they're, 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 they're doing, it's way more than just Atara. They're, they're helping every single cohort and even people, they don't choose the process of applying is so involved in like thinking about your organization and where you're going. that I'm sure people who even aren't selected gain from the whole process of application. So it's just, it's phenomenal what they're doing. If you have money, give it to them. <laughs> just kidding. Give it to us. Just kidding. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, Miriam, if you have a message for young women or girls out there who are, who are artistically inclined, whatever specific area that might be, that, what is your message for them now in, in 2022, looking out to those girls today in the, let's say specifically in the Orthodox community who are growing up that have talent or have interests in the arts, performing arts, and so forth? So two things. On the one hand, I want to give a message to the girls, which is just go for it. You know, you have talent. Hashem, Hashem created the world. Hashem created you with his talent. This is special. This is different. This is, you know, we don't have prophecy right now in this generation, but who knows if prophecy didn't convert to artistic talent, right? That the artists can see what isn't there. You are creating something that is new, that is coming from your soul. And your soul is connected to Hashem. You are davening and learning Torah. Anything you produce is going to impact, right? Like anybody who consumes it is going to be changed. The arts change people. You look at something, it changes your perspective. You see the, the meaning the consumer, that you listen to a song and it could heal you. You could be sad and you could listen to a music that could change your day, that could change your life. And you go to see theater and you learn about something you didn't know. You hear a perspective that you didn't hear before and you are able to absorb it because it was not didactic. Like the arts are such a powerful language, each one individually. And and they, they speak louder than words alone because they reach, they touch your soul as well. Music touches you emotionally in addition to the intellectual impact of the words, you know, that you're reading on a page or something. But if you set it to music, right? Or you dance is like a, you know, a moving art. The, the, the body is the paintbrush. It's lifting the goof off the ground towards heaven. There is nothing else that does that. It is this art form that is just misunderstood, right? Because we think that the spirit is holy, but the body is somehow bad. But the body is the house for the soul. And the body in itself, if used properly, you know, it can be beautiful and it can really uplift people. And it's, we do have these lessons for Simchas Torah, right? Like, you know, that, that joy, right? Like, what, what, how are we, how have we lost the idea that Simcha is a, a Torah value? right? So all of these combined, right, these messages that I'm sort of saying is that the arts are so important to Judaism and not to feel that as someone, as an artist, that you are on the fringe, that you are 
somehow not fitting in or that not appreciated. Hashem gave you something that is a gift, that is a piece of gold that you can share with others and your voice should be cultivated. You need to work hard. Just like you study accounting, you need to study voice. You need to put it in, right? Like you need to put in the time. You need to rehearse. You need to look at your gift as a serious ability, talent that needs to be maximized to its full potential. And don't just say, oh, it's just a side, a side gig, right? Like if you have something that can change people's lives and that's your unique gift, then you need to take it seriously and you need to make it the best that you can make it so that you can inspire more people. So that basically the message to the girls is it needs to be taken seriously and it has an impact on the world. It it will change the world. It will change the community. It will change people's lives. It will make the world a more spiritual place because we're bringing spirituality into the world through these powerful languages. It will bring Torah values into the world in ways that are enjoyable and people can love Torah and learn Torah in such enjoyable ways. Who knows? You know, it's like people will start to see Torah in such positive ways and enjoy, right? People that are not religious, you know, don't have to look at orthodoxy as like ripping toilet paper. It's a doorway into Shabbat, right? Or whatever it is, whatever it is for people, you know, it doesn't have to be about Torah, right? You know, it could just be about your soul and your self-expression and also just for your own health. If someone is good at math and they were literally told math is not accepted in Judaism, we don't like math, right? You cannot do math. Then all those people that had the potential to be accountants and actuaries and math teachers, their soul would be stilted, right? Like stifled. And so just having that outlet. So the other message though, that I have is for people who are not artists who don't understand. And I would say that the percentage of artists, non-artists is um, just from statistics, 15% are gifted and innovative abilities. And then literally like closer to seven or 8% of the population is really award-winning talent, like really talented. And then only 3% is really like gifted, like really, you know, very top. So that's sort of the statistics. So that's 85%. And let's say that the bottom 15% really just don't get it at all. But then the middle, you know, the bell curve, like there's another like sort of 60% in there that's, or 70% that it could go either way, right? Maybe they'll go to a show. Maybe they'll do their laundry. Maybe they'll appreciate, maybe they won't appreciate that they can be convinced. And I just feel like sort of speaking to that population, that understanding that this is also from research and eventually I actually got a school administration degree and um, studied creative thinking and, um, and creative students in orthodoxy. What I found I can sort of add to the message that I have for the non-artists is understanding that it's not just a stage. You don't just give someone a microphone and their problems are solved, you know, or, or let them play the violin and their problems are solved in orthodoxy or, you know, let them do painting. There are multiple points of encounter with orthodoxy because as a creative thinker, right, an artist also has a disposition towards creative thinking. And they're going to be more curious, have more questions, not be a non-conform, like predispositions to non-conformity, uh, autonomy, the need for autonomy, right? So like there's certain predispositions that are chemically wired into the brain and into the, the personality 
the creative personality. And, you know, there's multiple studies on, you know, learning about this. Um, and one of them is actually, so my study was about spirituality and the need for deep spirituality and deep emotional connection and meaning for artists. And so if you have someone who is creative, they have this whole other world, this whole other package that comes along with them that is going to include, and right, so you have these kids that are being potentially, right, maybe not so much anymore, but with the wrong educator, kicked out of class for asking the wrong questions. And they are sincerely asking questions because they are sincerely curious and they are sincerely not trying to hurt anyone or, you know, and, and, and cause disruption in the class. But if they're told you have to do this, right. And they say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do it that way or something. And because it's just, it's just hardwired, you know, and, and the, the teacher and the administrators and the parents don't understand the psychological needs of this population, then these kids are not even making it to middle school. I mean, literally the families that I know of artists, their kids, their kids, I mean, this is people that are involved in Atara or professional artists and their kids, five out of six, right? Let's say like I interviewed, you know, six families, five out of six. So one is a really strong mother who's like, I'm going to give my kid everything that she needs. And I'm going to be really supportive and force her to go to the base Jacob and do her homework. I'm on top of it. Right. Like, so that's intervention of the other families, five out of six, the kids are already in public school. They just say like, my needs aren't getting met. I'm a kid and my needs aren't, my basic needs aren't getting met. My emotional needs aren't getting met. Right. So they, they see that, that you can be an artist and you can paint and they have this talent, but their emotional needs aren't being met. And by, by middle school, I mean, that's, that's crazy. And some of them are literally defecting, you know, and they're super talented. And this was what motivated my research because I just felt like in the arts community, even with the work of Atara, I thought, great, you know, we're the magic pill, right? Now you can be an artist and religious. And still people were defecting. And I also was involved in this community called Cholent, which sort of, I mean, I don't know if people are already aware of it, but it's really this like, you know, Yiddish speaking, you know, ex community that picks up at 11 p.m. and ends at four o'clock in the morning. And it's just get together and talk about intellectual things. It's just open, accepting. And I mean, this guy is the biggest Sadiq, Yitzhak Schoenfeld, the biggest, he is a Sadiq, he's a Gadol Hador. He is catching the people that other people aren't catching. He's really catching them. He spends all nights talking people off the ledge of committing suicide. He's saving people's lives. He's creating a community for people that don't have a community and don't want to be judged. It's a complete non-judgment space. And to me, again, like that was just so fascinating, right? Like I was sort of like this anthropologist, like, you know, like I, this is a Judaism that I love. This non-interesting people artistically talented, spiritually deep, questioning and non-judgment, right? I just gravitated towards this. So I was becoming more religious, but I felt my happy place was this community because people were questioning and open and non-judging and just being and so deep. And I felt like these were the deepest, most intelligent, most spiritually evolved and also artistically talented, right? Like every week there's some sort of artistic performance or scholarly presentation. And that was like the model where he starts the night with some sort of performance or presentation that then gets people talking. 
So it was social, but it was intellectual. But meanwhile, it was a community of artists and scholars and intellectuals and spiritual, inspirational type people that were all not religiously, right? Like they weren't religiously observant. They weren't associating with organized religion. And I just felt like, wow, there's, there's something happening here. There's a connection between deep spirituality and creativity and going off the derech and it needs to be addressed. And I did find that basically this is, you know, part of this picture of the artist and the artistic personality is that it, it comes with a whole host of, you know, psychological and um, emotional needs that may or may not be addressed. So there could be a great teacher, a great mentor, a great intervention, right? A program, someone might get what they need from whatever it is that is already going on. But I think that it's also a really great need in terms of advocating to the community, the great need for understanding um, creative people. It's a fascinating diagnosis. And thank you for doing your part to resolve some of these challenges and, and help people bring out their potential and, and uh, find pathways to God uh, that are within the structure of Torah living, and yet that fully actualize their souls. So I think it's a really powerful mission that you're on. Uh, Miriam Leah, where can people learn about Atara and you know, find it online and, and so forth? So it's artsandtorah.org, A-R-T-S-A-N-D-T-O-R-A-H.org but also come with a spirit of non-judgment. You know, we, we are sort of like still volunteers and, you know, we have our website, but I'm sure it needs to be updated. So, um, so there's that. And I, I do have like static lists of, you know, where to find camps and songwriters. And we're going to be updating the songwriters because now there's just so much more of community of songwriters growing. Um, so that needs to be updated. But, you know, if you want looking for arts camps or art seminaries that focus on the arts or, um, you know, so we have the static lists and we have uh, bios of, artists that were previously involved in, you know, conferences. And so you sort of get a sense of like the background and the experience and the, the artists that have been involved. But we also have this newsletter. So every month I try, you know, it's again, it's sort of like every four to six weeks or when there's things really happening, the combination of what's happening. So it might not all be where you are. If you live in, you know, Edison, New Jersey, number one, there might be some things in the New York area, but one might be in Brooklyn and, you know, one might be in, who knows where. And, um, but there also might be things in Israel or things in Chicago or, you know, LA. So you're not necessarily going to attend every event, but it's, some of them are on zoom, but it's nice to know that they are happening and to be connected. And then also it's a list of new releases, like sort of news, you know, look at all of these new songs by Jewish women. So occasionally there is something that's men only. And I include that because I feel like it's still sort of within the spirit, but predominantly, you know, the need, right? Men who are in music can be hired for weddings and, you know, simchas, right? Like they can make their albums and be sold widely. And it's, it's harder for female singer-songwriters and musicians. Um, so it just, the community of women need more support. So yeah, so the newsletter, you can subscribe on the uh, website. Um, especially if you're an artist, obviously you can get in touch. If you're a creative or an artist, there's points of interaction. And of course, if you want to donate, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll happily put that to good use in helping people that aren't working as accountants, right? These are people that are gifted in an area that isn't bringing in a lot of money. So to a certain degree, there is, you know, not all artists are starving, but it's a conceptually, you know, we're not working as lawyers. It's hard to have every gift in the world everyone has to do their part <laughs> alan but we need other people's money <laughs> there we go per perfect way to end the jewish podcast 
Miriam Leigh Gamliel from Atara. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I happen to tell you that you just have the best. I mean, podcasts are incredible um, because you just go in depth, but I just are really loving every one of yours. And I've learned so much about so many people. So I thank you for your work. You are just brilliant and phenomenal in the way that you're contributing to the Jewish people as well. Thank you so much. That's an even better way to end a podcast. I'll, you one-upped yourself. There we go. <laughs> Miriam Liam Gamliel from Atara. Thank you for joining us. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.